This is episode 164 of the Stem Cell Podcast, IPSCs and Highly Endangered Species with Dr. Gene Loring. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Want links to all the papers discussed in each episode? You should subscribe to our newsletter and you'll get a summary of each episode, including links to interview and roundup papers delivered straight to your inbox each time a new episode comes out. Today, we have Dr. Jean Loring from the Scripps Research Institute. She's on the podcast to talk about her diverse range of research using iPSCs for cell therapy, genomics, epigenomics, all that stuff. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with MTZer Plus from Stem Cell Technologies, the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and iPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. MTZer Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash Plus. So diving right into it, first paper I'm going to talk about is from The Lancet. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. It's talking about the second paper, uh, second person cured of HIV thanks to hematopoietic stem cell transplant. So uh, researchers in the UK have confirmed that there's a now a second person who's actually been cured of this devastating disease um, just by receiving an HSC transplant. So back in 2007, Timothy Ray Brown was the first person who was ever cured by of HIV, right? So they refer to him as the Berlin patient. And now we're talking about the London patient. And Dr. And, you know, Timothy Ray Brown back in 2007, the, the cure wasn't that straightforward. So he had his HIV diagnosis in the 90s and he received antiretroviral treatment, right? So that's the usual course of action for HIV. And antiretrovirals are, you know, pretty good. People can survive on them for quite a quite a long period of time. But bad news was later on, he actually received a diagnosis of AML or, you know, acute myeloid leukemia. And for that, he actually needed a stem cell transplant. So he was looking for a donor match. And his doctor back in the day had an idea to try an experiment. So he was looking for a donor with a specific mutation in CCR5, which is, you know, the receptor for HIV, that actually made them immune to HIV. So receiving cells from the donor, it turned out, not only cured Mr. Brown's leukemia, but also cured the infection of HIV. And now we've got a follow-up study in The Lancet showing that there's another person who's also been cured of HIV thanks to a stem cell transplant. So what happened in this second scenario? So similarly, this London patient received a stem cell transplant with cells that didn't express the CCR5 gene, which is, of course, how the virus actually enters the cells. And the cells actually without the CCR5 were part of the, the bone marrow transplant, which was what the person was uh, uh, receiving as part of treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the cool thing is after the transplant and 30 day, 30 months after the person actually ended their antiretroviral therapy for HIV, the doctors confirmed that the HIV load remained pretty much undetectable in blood, semen, and various other samples. And so this means that uh, whatever traces of the virus's genetic material that were in the system, they were so-called fossil traces, meaning that they can actually lead to additional replication of the virus. And 
the the samples were, you know, once again, the HIV was undetectable in other samples, including cerebral spinal fluid, intestinal tissue, lymphoid tissue. So across the body, it seems like, you know, HIV was gone. And it, it's important to emphasize a couple things, though. I mean, of course, this is this is curative, but it's high risk, right? And it should only be used as kind of like a last resort for people who have HIV, because as I mentioned, antiretroviral therapy is pretty good. And combine, you have to combine that with the fact that these individuals have to also have a life-threatening hematoma, you know, a blood malignancy, a life-threatening cancer of the blood. So it's not, I doubt it's going to be something that's going to be widely offered to people with HIV who are already on a successful antiretroviral treatment. But you know, it, it is a cure. And this is cool because it's something that's been shown for a second time now. It's a definitive cure for HIV, although it may be a little bit extreme for, you know, everyday use. Yeah, extreme. But I, I think you you hit it there at the end when you talked about the second time thing. This is, this is why I mean, it's a bit old news, right? Because I remember reading about this second patient a while back, but now it's a paper because they've been able to show definitively over the long term that this is a fix, right? So now it's just dropping into the journal. But this has been in the, I think, in, this, in the sphere of those who've been following it for a while. Um, but you nailed it there. The, the real import of this, I think, is the, it's the second one, right? And that's at the fundament of all scientific advances, reproducibility. So now that we have someone else who's been cured this way, I think it really puts the nail in the coffin in terms of whether or not this can be used and whether or not it's effective. Uh, but like you said, whether or not it's practical uh, is another question. Um, but, you know, if not for the extreme lengths that you would have to go in these patients, I think that the, the next thing I'd be expecting to see is uh, using a kind of instead of taking a, a donor that already had the CCR5 deletion, uh, I would think that the next move would be to take like autologous cells and, and yep. target it. And I feel like this mm -hmm. was kind of what you needed before you get to that point. You need stuff to show that it works. It works twice. It works more than once, even probably as other patients may be cooking. But I feel like this is the real proof of principle for the idea that CCR5 deletion works. And if we can do that artificially, maybe that's the next step. But like you said, again, it's extreme. Having an ablative approach to replace the marrow, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise that for someone who's doing just fine on the existing retroviral meds, right? So I think that while it's not necessarily for everybody, uh, the principle is proven and it may be, uh, may be something that uh, uh, you have HIV patients hoping for cancer so that they can have a fix that's long-term and not have to take these drugs for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Anytime you can use the word cure associated with any sort of disease, it's going to generate a lot of hope. And understandably so. This is definitive cure, but <laughs> not for everybody, for sure. Yeah. For HIV plus cancer, you're in the money. Um, talking about cancer, you know, uh, you talked about these patients, Berlin patient, they had these AML. I'm going to talk a little about uh, lymphoma and uh, leukemia here. It's a bit of a different slant, but a blood story. You started it, so I'm going to follow it up. You know, lymphoma right. and leukemia, most common types of cancer in kids, particularly, um, although most of them get cured. But it's also 10% of all cancers are lymphoma and leukemia. So very common. We've gotten really good with the, the therapeutics, you know, treating them, also the diagnostics. There's all these different subclassifications. But still, uh, at the current state of the art, the initial diagnosis of these malignancies is mainly done by light microscopy and immunophenotyping, a combination of the two. We're talking about like flow cytometry or 
immunostaining, right? So using antibodies to identify the proteins and also just looking at them with a light microscope to see what they look like. But of course, when you have, in particular, the second part of that, or the first part, that light microscopic part of it, you know, it's subjective. It's cell morphology. There's a lot of inter-observer variability that's been documented in the past. And then on the other hand, you have the flow, right? You have flow cytometry or immunostaining, which is meant to be more objective. Uh, and that works really well with normal samples where you have the extra, uh, expected distributions um, and normal kind of marker expression, but you can't really distinguish cells that have a similar phenotype to the normal. You know, so if you're looking for a neoplasmic cancer that really closely mimics a cell of origin, you're kind of out of luck there because they look just like the cell of origin, right? Um, also, you know, tumors, they evolve. Tumors, they can be expressed, have one phenotype, and then they evolve and express uh, or lose the, the antigen that you were looking for. Or they have abnormal expression of the antigen. So in order to accommodate this clinically, the laboratory staff and pathologists that do this diagnostic type measurements, they have to choose you know, between 50 and 30 markers to evaluate. It's very labor intensive. Uh, you need to have years and years of experience. And any one of the two, if you just, just use a light microscope or just use the immunophenotyping with flow or, or staining, they're, they're not really useful by themselves. And they need the integration of both together by pathologists that have been doing it for many, many years. You know, path as a, as a, as a pathology, as a path into, into medicine, it's very, it's painstaking. It takes many years. So what do we do about this? You know, there's this idea that's emerging in terms of looking at a lot of things at once, this mass cytometry or cytometry by time of flight, cytoff that we've talked about on the show in the past. Um, and what, uh, Sean Bendel and his group at Stanford did in this study is that they identified a set of antigens, so cellular antigens, that serve as surrogates, okay? They're objectively quantifiable uh, objective surrogates for these uh, light microscopic measurements like uh, granularity, the granular color, the chromatin quality nuclear shape, nucleolar size, cytoplasmic color, cell size. These are all things that are subjective measurements. They found objective quantifiable means of documenting this. Uh, and, you know, that allows them to resolve many more subcellular features and combine them with the immunophenotyping as well. Okay, so what they did using these so-called morphometric reagents that they titled scatter bodies instead of antibodies. That's trying to capitalize on the scatter plots and the size and these more physical or, uh, you know, these measurements that are, are historically been more subjective. And they, they apply these scatter bodies to 71 samples uh, of diverse origins and show that they were very robust in um, defining these morphometric markers for every cell type that was of interest, okay? So to go into detail here briefly, they found that lamin B1 was able to highlight acute leukemia, all right? So there you go, you have a nice pathological measure there. Lamin A and C helped to distinguish normal from neoplastic T cells. This other uh, factor, VAMP7, it recapitulates the, the side scatter uh, phenotype. So combining all these scatter bodies and measurements with the cytoff and the mass uh, morphometry, they call it multiplex morphometry, they show that it's superior to flow um, and comparable to flow plus microscopy. 
and it's objective. So you can do this automated and it's as good or better than these pathologists that have years and years of specialized training. So they're coming for your jobs now, pathologists. <laughs> the robots are coming for your jobs too. Watch out. There's a lot of fear in pathology these days. I mean, I guess some people are and or aren't afraid of AI or other awesome technologies that are going to take away, you know, jobs from pathologists. I, I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. I do think you need a, like a human element in the medical side of things, even for, for pathological analysis. But, you know, that is, they say like, oh, what's the medical profession that's most likely to be replaced by technology and pathology keeps on coming up again and again. Do you buy that? Well, look, I think, I mean, I hear a lot when I talk about the, what's going to be replaced. I hear a lot about radiology. And I have to say, the more studies you hear yeah. coming out in terms of diagnosing tumors, it's, they're not so bad. That's, AI is pretty good with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I could see, I agree with you, though, that path, there's more nuance there. And, and really, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand radiology or pathology well enough to say which one is more likely to replace. And I don't appreciate all the nuance. I'm sure there's a lot of human element necessary for both of them. But, hey. I mean, if I were a pathologist, I'd be looking at, you know, tweak my resume a little bit. Well, you know, I think we still have a long ways to go, but sure, a lot of those studies have come out, you know, saying that the AI can do a really good job with predicting different types of cancer. So more work to be done, but interesting times nonetheless. And speaking of cancer, we're shifting gears a little bit and talking about, once again, organoids. Organoids intersecting with high-throughput screening. This is a paper that's coming out of uh, Michael Bassick's lab from Stanford titled CRISPR Screens and Cancer Spheroids Identify 3D Growth Specific Vulnerabilities. First author is Kyuho Han. Paper came out March 11th, so not too long ago. So recently, Michael Bassick's lab, and you know, even when I was at Stanford, I, I remember this, this kind of happening. Their lab's been busy making tons of different tumor spheroids. And these are little balls of cells that are modeling 3D lung cancer that uh, they're using trying to figure out how tumor tissue is going to grow. And so these lung cancer spheroids are thought to capture the details of how lung cancer, cancer actually grows in a better way than in a two-dimensional format. We talk about every single episode in this podcast how folks are starting to shift from 2D to 3D. So here's another example of that. And so for a long time, people investigating how cancer arises would grow tumor cells in cell culture dishes, right? 2D formats. But there's a lot of advantages to growing stuff in 3D because obviously that's how stuff happens in the body, right? So what they did here in Dr. Bassick's lab was to make a more robust mock-up of lung cancer tissue, which is grown from patient-specific cancer cells. So this is patient-specific. It's not IPS. This is actually tumor-derived. And then they wanted to expose these cells to the drivers of tumor growth and eventually reveal how uh, clues as to how the tumor might be slowed or eventually stopped. And of course, the three-dimensional models of cancer aren't new. People have been working with this for, for a long time now, right, through three-dimensional culture. It's really taken off recently, but it's been in the works for a few years now. So a few things that are unique about these cultures from Dr. Bassick's lab. These 3D spheres are really, really small as opposed to other organoid types. And they're actually about the size of half a grain of sand, which makes them really scalable. I think if you think about 
organoids. One of the fears of organoids and maybe one of the limitations up to this point is that they're not super scalable. But they're suggesting here that, at least for these lung organoids, that they definitely are. And they can make a ton of them in a really short amount of time, like millions in a few weeks. They actually contain uh, more cells than other cultures of lung cancer spheroids, which uh, have a few million cells, and these cells are around 200 million. And this allows for the final component of the puzzle in terms of interrogating lung cancer function. And this is using these lung spheroids, uh, intersecting them with CRISPR-Cas9 screening to actually be able to search the entire genome for new drug, tar drug targets for cancer. What they're doing here is actually using CRISPR to study the molecular details of how cancer actually arises using these tiny you know, lung cancer-specific organoids. What they want to do is actually do a genome-wide screen. So one gene per cell, ideally, to see how it's going to affect the growth of the tumor. And that way, each spheroid is a little bit different. And if its growth is slowed in a one lung sphere, then maybe they would know how that particular gene is being altered in that model and how that gene is actually driving lung tumor development which ultimately could lead to a new drug target. And they use this whole approach to actually uh, identify a gene called CPD, which is actually required for the function of two known oncogenes. They saw that actually deletion of CPD prevents tumor growth in cells and also in, in mouse models to, to confirm. But what's actually really cool here is that the traditional classical like 2D cells in a dish model, the deletion of CPD didn't really have a strong effect. But in their 3D organoid model, it did. So this showcases that you know maybe you need this 3D model to actually get a better understanding of how cancer is arising. Cool thing is CPD is tied to the successful function of an oncogene, a pretty famous oncogene called KRAS. And at least in their models, they've been able to show that both disabling CPD and KRAS simultaneously can kill cancer cells that are originally started by a KRAS mutation. So... As I mentioned, you know, one of the limitations of organoids has been their scalability. And this is showing that, hey, maybe that's not as much of an issue. If you can couple organoids to a high-throughput CRISPR screen, then I really think the sky's the limit when it comes to actually precise interrogation of the function of different genes that may lead to cancer. I think it's a really cool application of both CRISPR and organoids. Yeah, it's a nice combo. And uh I mean, I don't understand exactly the, the methods, you know, comprehensively. I just had a glance at this, but it seems like such a, a, an amazing amount of work because uh, I, I don't exactly know how do they how do they identify the hit is because it's permissive for growth. Do those grow out? Or are they just going after gene after gene after gene? Do you know how many like candidate targets they had? This seems like such an amount of work. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they actually did quite a comprehensive screen of hundreds of different genes. So, you know, that's kind of the advantage of a CRISPR-based approach is you can kind of just do like a massive screen. Basically, it doesn't matter what you target as long as you target something separately in each organoid, uh, you know, individually. And so that's kind of how they're able to identify this CPD as a driver of uh, oncogenesis. Pretty cool. Yeah, and they take it deep too. I mean, first the 2D, they show it doesn't work in 2D, then it does in 3D. And then of course, the next question, is it relevant in vivo? And they show that of course it is and mechanistically with the IGF receptor. It's a comprehensive study. That's why it gets into nature, Arun. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's barely my capacity to understand it, but I can see what you're saying here. We're moving forward into physiology here. These tools are being used to address cancer 
where it lives, you know, not, it doesn't live in a dish, it lives in our bodies. So it's, it's amazing work. I got to talk about something here, you know, because it's getting close to the summer and there's a lot of people leaving town to go to the beach amidst this whole coronavirus threat. Um, right now as we're recording and I'm thinking about getting to the beach, but I'm, I'm, I'm like very shrimpy, you know, I haven't been in the gym for a while. I got a story here about muscle stem cells may help me out, may get all you other shrimpy people out there into the beach early looking good. Maybe not, probably not going to be manipulating your muscle stem cells. But if you were interested, this is a story from Ben Cosgrove, uh, who is at Cornell University, uh, also where I work. Uh, a story on muscle stem cells, like I said, also known as satellite cells. And they maintain muscle homeostasis, but also regeneration. You know, when you go to the gym and you break them down, they build back up. That's regeneration. They do that throughout lifespan. So it's an impressive stem cell pool. Of course, their self-renewal and, and progenitor capacity is diminished with age. But uh, this is something that, you know, not just for the cosmetic region, reasons I joke about the beach, but there's a lot of muscle wasting diseases that uh, would be would benefit from a deeper understanding of muscle cell regeneration also with age you know we get flimsy so it's an important field uh these muscle stem cells they're in the periphery of the muscle myofibers and they're like safe there in a nice little cocoon quiescent but then when there's injury they activate self-renew differentiate into progenitors that then repair the whole joint right um and this is orchestrated by a bunch of signaling as you would imagine, a bunch of different cell types, not just the muscle cells and their derivatives, but also immune cells, endothelial cells, of course, and also surrounding fibroblasts, adipogenic progenitors as well. Um, so you have this whole continuum of cells that are helping the process along. And also within the, the myogenic stem progenitor cell lineage, there's also a continuum of intermediate states uh, within that regenerating muscle. And just briefly, there's like this kind of hierarchy. You have the quiescent PAC7 uh, expressing muscle stem cells that are, you know, homeostasis. And then after injury, they are activated into cell cycle and they have this monogenic expression program that's typified by expression of this gene MYF5. And then those divide and their progeny either self-renew and feed back to replenish the PAC7 population or they differentiate into the business end of it, these myo-D-positive myogenic progenitors, also known as myoblasts, right? Um, but the bottom line here, and the reason for this study, is that the myogenic progenitor pool population, even though we've done a lot, you know, we've had guests on, on the show before talking about muscle, and we know a lot about the, all the different markers in, in these cells, but even when you enrich and purify these cells and do um, kind of molecular... Uh, analyses, you see that there's still a lot of heterogeneity, and this is in in you know in embryos and adults throughout. You always have this heterogeneity in this muscle regeneration program. So, in order to try and better understand this, um, and to try and understand the continuum of, of cell states that are present in the regenerating muscle, uh, Dr. Cosgrove and his group, of course, what they do, they did single cell seek because that's what you do when you have a heterogeneous population, right, Arun? Mm -hmm. That's right. So they did the single cell seek in mice during muscle regeneration. These poor mice, they injured their muscles, and then they looked at the regeneration process. They got 34,000 cells spanning four time points. They identified 15 unique cell types and made a hierarchical map of those 
uh, myogenic cells, show that there was stage-specific regulatory programs, of course, across that continuum. And then, I mean, what was interesting, I think, here in and relevant, more relevant clinically, I guess, is they use this vast pool of cell transcriptomes um, to look at ligand receptor interaction analyses and identified more than 100 uh, paracrine signaling relationships that may be relevant to regeneration. Uh, and then confirmed, Arun, using ligands in vitro. They confirmed mm. that three of these factors, FGF2, TGF-beta-1, and RSPO3, they were all relevant. They all regulated myogenic cell proliferation. So it's a nice reference there to add to the catalog of single cell seq, but also it really goes after these paracrine signaling relationships and identifies some ligands that may be relevant to muscle regeneration and may help to uh, you know, augment proliferation of the, either the stem or progenitor cells. So we might be headed to the beach around you and me and looking good. Well, you're uh, kind of stuck there in frozen New York City, but you know I'm living here in LA, LA, so I can go to the beach any day I want. You know, um, Not, no, why, no problem with me. Why do you have to you rub know? it in? <laughs> Sorry, man, I gotta rub it in. <laughs> so dot plots, dot plots, dot plots. You know, that's single cell these days, right? A lot of exciting work going on with single cell. Um, all different sort, sorts of bodily systems. You know, we're talking about the muscle here. A lot of cool work that's been done with muscle recently. I can uh, imagine Helen Blau thought this paper was pretty cool. Helen Blau is one of the big muscle biologists over at Stanford. So when it comes to actually the, the functional analysis that you talked about here, I thought that was really exciting. And one of the pieces of technology that I don't know if you mentioned here that they actually used in their analysis was something you just talked about, which is Cytoff. Cytoff is taking over. You know, it's mass cytometry. You're able to get a resolution of the analysis of different, you know, like ligand receptor interactions, for example. Uh, at a resolution that you can't really get with like flow cytometry. The advantage of Cytoff is you can do, uh, you're not limited by the wavelengths of light, for example, like you are with flow cytometry, traditional flow cytometry. So you can do multiple parallel analyses, nearly limited based on the heavy metal isotope that you're actually using. So you're able to really scale things up pretty, pretty big time. I think Cytoff is probably going to take over. It's going to take over flow cytometry pretty soon. At least that's what I think. Yeah, I think it's a, that's that's a foregone conclusion. It's a good point. As you say it, I'm reminded, you know, my wife and I, we often talk about how this generation, our kids in particular, it's the, the prime generation. Have you heard that? The, the, it's like by virtue of Amazon Prime. And it's, yeah. it's epitomized by the, you know, get it now type thing. I, when I was a kid, I'd buy a computer game two weeks later, it'd show up in the mail and I was like psyched. That was fine with me. My kids, if they don't get it tomorrow, they're freaking out. So this is what I'm seeing the parallels. Is it coincidence that the scientific, you know, the, the, the type of assay we have is kind of it's similar in that we're moving towards with single cell seek and Cytoff. It's like, it's not enough to do the recursive analysis. We want all the information in one mm -hmm. pass and we want it now. So I feel like you're right. It's, it's, it's leveraging these high, you know, cutting edge tools, high end tools that allow you to get this massive resolution and to get pretty much all the information right away, or not necessarily right away in terms of expediency, but in one pass. And I would only say my only critique, because I'm, I'm in it too, I love single cell everything, but my only critique of that would be, as we've said before on the show, that what do we do with all this information in the room? 
Yeah, we've talked about it before. You got to reproduce it. There's notorious batch to batch variability when it comes to single cell analysis. And look, you know, I'm a fan of high throughput. I've done a lot of high throughput stuff in the past. Cytoff is an you know example of that. There's still something to be said about really diving deep into a specific mechanism, uh, focusing on a single gene and really interrogating the crap out of it. I am actually a huge, huge proponent of papers like that. I still think they're absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And the the other thing is not every lab is going to have the resources to do something like this, right? The hope is single cell, Cytoff, all these high throughput assays are going to become cheaper. But right now they're not. So they're limited to certain labs. And that's also a reason why there may be a skew in terms of, you know, uh, who gets to publish these things, which I don't think is entirely fair. So, you know, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of awesome applications for going super deep into a specific mechanism and specific gene. I'm all for it. I'm with you. That's brilliant. I always say to my students that, that, you know, you make fun of me when I was doing my, you know, moving stuff between water baths. But when you do it yourself, when you do all the little steps, you understand that assay and that can give you insight into the biology. So I, yeah, I, I agree. Go deep on something, guys. Go deep. You, you, you'll be surprised at what you see. When you just send it to the core and they give you an Excel file with a bunch of gene lists, you know, you haven't earned it. So I, I'm with you. I, I'm not, I'm not, hey, you've earned it. You've done plenty. But I'm just saying there's two ways to do it or many ways to do it. I would try them all. Moving on. That's a little bit of philosophy. I got too deep into that. I apologize. Let's get back <laughs> to the show, Arun. And, you know, before we get to our guests, so I'm going to talk briefly with a message from Stem Cell Technologies. No more philosophy. We're talking now pluripotent stem cells again. As, a, as research using pluripotent stem cells advances towards the clinic... There's a renewed focus on cell quality, you guys. You should visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality uh, to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, guys, that's a message from stemcell.com. Have a look, www.stemcell.com slash cell quality all one word and now let's move on to our guest dr lauren can't wait to talk to her all right folks today on the interview segment for the stem cell podcast we have with us dr gene loring from the scripps research institute dr loring is the professor emeritus and director of the center for regenerative medicine at the scripps research institute as well as the chief scientific officer for aspen neuroscience she received her phd from the university of oregon institute of molecular biology in developmental neurobiology and her lab focuses on ipscs with a diverse application of iPSCs, including the genomics and epigenetics of iPSCs, cell therapy for Parkinson's disease and, and multiple sclerosis, pharmacogenomics, and mapping iPSCs from endangered animals to one day repopulate the species. So Dr. Loring, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you very much. So much of your lab's work focuses on the genomics and epigenetics of human iPSCs, and your lab was a pretty early adopter of the technology, publishing a nature paper back in the day comparing ESCs and iPSCs back in 2008. We're obviously huge fans of iPSCs on this show. 
for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And their potential is starting to be more fully realized through their intersection with other new technologies, such as CRISPR and organoids, too. So what's on the horizon for iPSCs now that the hurdles of reprogramming have been largely worked out? Is it establishing more naive state cells or more fine-tuning epigenetics so that differentiation can improve? So what's next for human iPSC technology? So I see um, a couple of things. One is that uh, we don't fully know everything about iPS cells now, so we still need to keep asking them, like, what are what is the epigenetic um, uh, profile that happens when a cell becomes something? Um, but I'm, I'm not particularly interested in uh, naive states. Um, I was trying very hard to do everything I can without using naive states. Perhaps I'll have to turn to it someday, but probably not. We are doing organoids, but right now the main focus of our lab and all the people who've worked for me for maybe 10 to 12 years is to develop a stem cell therapy for Parkinson's disease. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is what's great about doing the show. I mean, the science is we're scientists, right? Science trained, love it. Uh, but doing this show, we get a front row to see front row seat to, to what's next, uh, talking to the authors of that knowledge, yourself being one of them. Um, but one question we rarely ask is what's the end point? And I think you, you talked about it right there. You kind of answered it. You know, your goal for the last decade more has been therapy for Parkinson's. Um, of course, you know, when we talk about endpoints, there's no end. We're never going to know it all. We're never going to figure it all out in the natural world. Maybe a better question that I want to ask you is what, what are the limits to what IPS ES cells can do, you know, clinically, maybe experimentally? What are the limits? I don't see a lot of limits. I mean, I do see problems with uh, translation if it's a very uh, if if you are using autologous cells, which is what we've decided to do, and for uh, diseases like cancer or other diseases that need to be treated right away, iPS cells, autologous iPS cells are not going to work. But I see a, a huge um, potential. We just need to think about it. We need to think it through, which is what we did with Parkinson's disease, step one, step two, step three. And then try to figure out how the FDA works, which is what I'm doing now. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about those applications of iPSCs for, for Parkinson's. So cell mm -hmm. therapy is obviously a, a major application for these cells. And um, you focus on differentiating iPSCs into dopaminergic neurons for studying and treating Parkinson's disease, which is thought to be caused by the loss of these neurons. And you've also created a rat model whereby Parkinson's-like symptoms can be reversed by introducing these cells. So, of course, the ultimate goal is to create a cell therapy for humans, um, although, you know, through appropriate clinical trials. So where are we right now when it comes to using cell replacement therapy for Parkinson's and other neurological disorders using iPSCs? Um, I think we're actually right on the forefront or right on the edge of uh, translation right now. Um, some uh, patients in Japan, uh, there are uh, people in June Takahashi's group, are transplanting iPS cell derived dopamine neurons into patients already. And their patients are now, I think the first patient is coming up in about uh, about a year. So um, 
we get to find out from those people how well these things work. Uh, we do. We have coordinated with other groups, um, more or less, depending on how competitive we happen to be at the moment, to make sure that we're all making at least generally the same kind of cell and that we're delivering it in the same kind of way. So the other groups besides uh, Takahashi's in Kyoto is Lauren Studer at Blue Rock and uh, Roger Barker and Malin Parmar, um, who are in UK and Sweden. We're in communication quite a bit, in fact, in spite of the fact that we are, in fact, competitors with each other. Yeah, you know, the, the, you mentioned these names that are on the forefront of the therapeutic translation of uh, ideas, really, that were, were, you know, the seeds of those ideas were planted decades ago. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I do mean decades too, 1980s. Yes, yeah. I mean, not even when ESLs were derived. We're talking right. like predate, predate that, pre, you know, the, the concepts, right? Um, but let's let's talk about when ESLs came into play. And there was, I think, a lever. Everyone said, "Well, now we have the human material. What's to stop us?" Right? And in my recollection, it seemed like the the early translational efforts, or at least the commercialization efforts. They were more of like, you get this, the scientists in their labs and it was like licensing. Uh, you get like Geron, for example, they kind of appropriate an idea or technology um, and other big farmer like them. But I think Geron was the greatest example. And they, 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 you know, they were optimistic as you would expect. The work was mm -hmm. moving fast. They're like, this is, we got this. You know, they had a bunch of beautiful animations of mice that were yeah. paralyzed and then they started walking and we're like, okay. It's yeah. that simple. But then, you know, of course, the reality uh, sunk in. It was much more difficult and the problems started to to emerge or the obstacles, I should say. Yes. Um, but now we're in this kind of next wave, right, where Biocite was kind of our early lead. But you mentioned yes. Blue Rock and Sema with Doug mm -hmm. Melton. And it's it's these these companies that were kind of founded in large part by scientists. They're run by scientists with some, you know, CSOs uh, jumping in there and they're emerging and they're huge capitalization. They're being bought up. Everyone's getting rich. Um, so you, as someone who has a long <laughs> list of patents, right? You got a lot of yep. patents. You got your own enterprise there, Aspen Neuroscience, mm -hmm. that you're the CSO of. What's your prediction for how these, this recent wave you said it right before that we're on the cusp. What's your prediction for how these these come out? Do you think that this is going to be it? Are there, there, there more bumps on the road? Do you think this iteration is going to result in cell therapies in, in the near term, immediate term? Or do you think it's going to be a long road? I think one of the first applications that's going to work is, uh, there are two of them really, for type 1 diabetes, um, because there are two groups working on this. There's Doug Melton and Sema, and there's uh, the people at Viasite who, in fact, um, I have stock in Viasite, so, um, but not enough to actually matter, uh, because the company I started back in um, 2001 uh, was acquired by Viasite. Mm. It wasn't actually acquired by Viasite. It was acquired by the precursor of Viasite, which merged with other companies, which merged with other companies. Anyway, that's the history of embryonic stem cells. So I've been following their work, obviously, for a long time, and they've had some really amazing setbacks. I mean, it, essentially, the problem is you really don't know what's going to happen until the cells go into humans. So you might have something work really well in an animal model or even a non-human primate. 
But um, until the cells actually go into humans, there's always that one little thing that you couldn't have imagined. I think the best um, example of that is actually from a, a slightly different field in CAR-T therapy, in which nobody really anticipated cytokine storms. Mm. They, didn't they did not anticipate that the immune system would start going completely bonkers if you uh, put in these modified T cells. So now that's a checkpoint. <laughs> you know, didn't kill too many people, but now it's something we need to be aware of. I think with um, transplant of cells that are not matched to people, and I know I'm, I know I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to argue for using autologous cells whenever possible. We're going to have immune effects that we don't know about, and it will depend on the cells, um, the exact cell type, the differentiated state of the cell, uh, the state at which we transplant it. There will the immune system will will get involved, even in the brain. So I think we need to think through all the possible things that might happen and try really hard not to be surprised. Hmm. So speaking of clinical translation, Dr. Loring, you've had the good fortune to be able to closely work with and benefit from CIRM, which is the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. And of course, CIRM has had a tremendous role in boosting the prospects for rigorous stem cell research in the state of California, which is part of the reason I'm here, actually. But yeah. unfortunately, of course, CIRM's success has also led to the rise of some unsanctioned stem cell clinics in California. Mm -hmm. And many of these companies offer kind of scientifically dubious stem cell therapies for thousands of dollars sometimes, which could have no benefit or worse, could even hurt patients. So it's a problem, right? And you've been pretty vocal in advocating for the importance of having stem cell therapies based on good science as opposed to the alternative. So is there anything that we can do better as a community, as a scientific community, to help combat these bad actors and make sure stem cell biology is seen in a good light? I think we need to be more proactive on social media because that's where everybody gets their information. <laughs> um, I certainly get a lot of emails. Um, I get invitations to write articles about this, which is, you know, it depends on what the readership will be. Um, I almost always agree to speak to anybody in a television studio or in a newspaper because I think they have the widest range of, of connections. But I think we we all have to agree that evidence-based research, evidence-based therapies are really the only possible uh, road forward. And I think we need to not we need to get away from blaming the FDA for being too uh, too circumspect about uh, development of new therapies. Um, and we need to try to, teach people enough science so that they have a, a feeling for how they can tell the difference between real science and this, uh, these charlatans. Mm. Yeah. I, you touched on it though, that the, um, the, it's kind of the quickest way, the easiest way to spread information. It seems nowadays is social media. Uh, and it's, and it's really the people oftentimes that are kind of driving decisions. I mean, I don't want to dwell on it, uh, but, you know, we're in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic and it seems in large part like uh, the, 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 the people, the hysteria has kind of it's kind of like the tail wagging the dog a little bit yeah. uh, in terms of the government and their response. So the people really drive. And, it's the, and, and similarly, I think, you know, in terms of going back to CERM, we were talking that was a that was a public impetus behind that. Right. Whoever whoever designed it and came up with the idea, the public had to sign on. 
Um, and a lot of the momentum behind him, of course, was the public support, right, for that proposition. It was something yes. they voted on it, right? So, yes. uh, and that momentum, I think, was the, the story there. It drew upon the idea of cells as a regenerative tool. But now we've kind of we've kind of turned the corner, and IPSCs have all these other amazing applications, you know, disease modeling, drug discovery, toxicology, etc. Um, in your opinion, if we had to lobby the public for like a Proposition seventy two, do you think that we would place the same emphasis on selling the regenerative, the cell based regenerative, or do you think that maybe we it was overstated? Uh, the potential <laughs> accidentally. I mean, who knew what the limitations were then? But like, if you yeah. could do it over again, would you kind of reframe the expectations in terms of the regenerative aspects, the cell-based aspects? Of course. I mean, I think any scientist would agree with that. Um, it has led to disappointments. Um, and I think we should have under-promised and over-delivered rather than the opposite. Um, I think moving forward, what I've been emphasizing, because it makes sense to most the most people, is that CIRM built an infrastructure. Uh, CIRM trained people. Um, virtually everybody in my lab now, including, was a CIRM intern. Those are the, those are the research assistants that I've been hiring. Um, the postdocs that I hire uh, were at some point involved in a CIRM lab. What it does is it, it creates this, um, this basis for um, high quality researchers with the skills that we need in order to advance. And that's been very valuable to me in starting up Aspen Neuroscience. As I said, almost everybody was a CERM intern. One thing, the follow-up there is, uh, do you think that other uh, localities, other governments, state governments could duplicate that, or is it really unique to, uh, to California? <laughs> I think what California had going for it was the Hollywood um, touch, yeah. um, because the, the, um, they had amazing... Um, advertisements. I mean, they had many, many famous people, um, you know, who are recognizable doing the, um, these advertisements and they had a lot of TV coverage. I mean, I remember just thinking, how can you, where do you get the money to do all this? And, mm -hmm. and in fact, that's what happened. It was because there was money put into it before it was funded that allowed these, all these commercials to be made. I'm hoping that they can do that again. And I'm also hoping that the commercials aren't quite so dramatic. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be an interesting year for sure with uh, the potential renewal of CIRM coming up. So fingers crossed for that. But speaking of kind of other applications of IPSCs, you've actually been working with the San Diego Zoo on a pretty yes. unique application, animal conservation, and more specifically working with the Zoo's Conservation Research Institute. You've been able to generate IPSCs from a bunch of endangered species, such as the white rhino, for example. And this is such a cool real world application of IPSCs. So how does this come about and what other species are is the zoo interested in preserving you think we could ever create like a i don't know like a noah's ark of ipscs like a repository of ipscs from all species you know just in case yeah no I, you should look at the cover of the uh, the nature methods in which we published the first ips cells from uh, endangered species it is in fact a noah's ark oh, okay. of animals <laughs> so I, I swear i didn't look at that <laughs> good good idea but yeah it's, it's already it's already there um, okay. 
Yeah, I came. I mean, I think the attitude that I've always had is that I want to do what is the most interesting at the moment. And it sometimes that's risky. Um, I've never really had mentors. And so I really have been I don't pay I don't listen to other people's ideas about uh, what I should be doing, which is probably to my detriment in in, in general. Uh, but it's kept me very um, excited about science. So the uh, the zoo thing came about because um, the head of the uh, of the conservation research institute there um, was a friend of mine, and uh, we had shown up together at some meetings, and we started talking about. I, he asked me about stem cells, so I started telling him about stem cells, and this was in uh, two thousand and seven, which is the the very year that Shinya Yamanaka published his reprogramming of human cells for the first time. So um, I had moved uh, from the Burnham Institute to Scripps. I was recruited to Scripps, which was um, pretty amazing. And I wanted to give my um, my whole lab a treat. So I arranged with, uh, with Oliver at the zoo uh, to have a safari. And so we, we took a truck out into the uh, wild animal park, now called the Safari Park, and we um, and we just got to uh, talk. It was like a scientific meeting. And by the time we'd left, by the time we got home, one of my postdocs was really excited about trying to reprogram something other than humans. Hmm. And so we asked him, um, we asked the people at the, the uh, wild animal park what they might be interested in. It turns out that they had this frozen zoo, which was started in the 70s. Hmm. And amazingly, the cells that they decided to grow, decided to save from these animals that were dying or going extinct, were skin fibroblasts, hmm. which the methods for doing that haven't changed much in the last, oh gosh, it must be 50 years now. So... Um, we decided that, uh, or she decided that she wanted to make a go of it. She was a CERM postdoc at the time, so that was useful. I didn't have to find another grant to, to pay her, and um, she worked on this. Uh, on this, we asked Oliver what which uh, cell line or which animal we should reprogram, and his favorite animal, because there was one at the zoo named uh, Nora, was his uh, his uh, the the northern white rhino. And the northern white rhino is now down to two animals, which are um, in Kenya in a preserve. So it seems it seemed like maybe it would be the most difficult thing, but also maybe the most exciting thing and the most impactful thing we could do. So we got the fireblast out of the frozen zoo, and and um, in Ingrid um, uh, Friedrich, I can never pronounce her name. Cut that. Um, and my postdoc. <laughs> My postdoc uh, worked for a year to try to figure out how to reprogram using the human methods, and eventually it worked. Mm. And so after that, we we didn't get traditional grants. Um, the zoo stepped in, and the zoo started funding the research, and the zoo started built their own IPS cell lab. The zoo brought in six uh, southern white rhinoceros females. Uh, they flew them in from Africa, so they started a rhino rescue center. Those are are females that will eventually be the surrogate mothers for the embryos that we hope to make someday out of the sperm and eggs that we make from the IPS cells from the northern white rhino. Wow. What yeah. a journey. 
I love That's that amazing. story. It starts with the morale building trip to the zoo and, you know, <laughs> a year later, however many years later, you got a zoo with an IPS lab. I mean, what the amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, it seems like, you know, it's probably a, a, a emblem of, of your character. You know, you're, you're, you're one for adventure. You're one for the kind of serendipitous pursuit of the vicissitudes of life. We have it here in the notes. <laughs> that you're an eclipse chaser, for goodness sake. You've seen 17 eclipses. What's that about? Do you have some kind of narrative here, a metaphoric narrative <laughs> for how the astronomic scale and recursive fractal something or other, it looks just like organelles in a cell, or you just like to, to chase <laughs> That all eclipses? came later. That all came later. Um, um, so I... I thought of science. My father was a geologist, a different kind of scientist, a PhD, um, very um, interested in everything and um, probably influenced me. I thought astronomy was also interesting. And so um, I uh, decided, again, a story, there's a story behind it, but it's not necessary. It was in the late 70s. I decided to go and see an eclipse in Oregon. It was awesome. I mean, just awesome. And I decided that the next time there was a chance, I was going to go to the next one. And each time I'd say, well, when's the next one? So we've gotten, um, as we've managed, my husband and I have managed to uh, become a little bit uh, wealthier. We've managed to get other people to arrange our trips. So we just have to show up. We have a group of, we really don't know these people that we go with. Um, a lot of them are far geekier than we are. I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievably how geeky these guys are. And, and, they, you know, you pretty much the first thing you establish is, hello, my name is, and I've seen, you know, 25 eclipses. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're engineers and, uh, I don't know, just really peculiar people. And most of them know much more about astronomy than I do. Um, I like it just because it's something that will take me away from my life at a time and take me to a place that's interesting. And I can't change that. So I have to make my life wrap around that rather mm. than wrap my life around it. In other words, you can't cancel an eclipse. Mm -hmm. I see. I'm looking at your eclipse map here, you eclipse geek, and it's amazing. <laughs> it's We got Africa, we got Libya. What do you got here? Botswana? I mean, I, I'm looking, the map is wide scale, so I don't, but I'm looking in, in the Russian territories. You've been everywhere. Turkey, Indonesia. Is that Hawaii? There's one in the middle of the ocean. What's that? The Galapagos? You're insane. Easter Island. Oh, wow. wow that's something else. Um, wow. That's all I could say. Wow. That is awesome. Eclipses are awesome, but you're awesomer and you're a sick geek, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> so from white rhinos to eclipses, it seems like you've done it all, Dr. Loring. So this has been a ton of fun. And before we let you go, we're going to ask you a few science peripheral kind of rapid fire questions just uh -huh. to see, you know, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So starting off with what non-science book are you reading or that you've read that is awesome? So the one that I just started reading yesterday, I was reading a lot of Trump books and then they were too depressing. So <laughs> last last night I um, started reading Rowan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill. Mm. And I think that's very timely. And it, there's a sort of a, um, you know, the way things have turned out with Harvey Weinstein getting sentenced to prison, it feels like it has a happy ending mm. to me. Mm -hmm. And I also want to point out that journalists are my favorite people right now because they're the ones who are stepping 
stepping out and saying things that are extremely important to to um, to say right now or any time really, and um, I'm happy to help them. That's why I never say no. Hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. What they're doing is just super important, especially in a time like now. So shifting gears a little bit, what was your greatest or most memorable science revelation or surprise? In other words, an aha moment. Well, I'm going to start with the most recent one, which was when our we sent organoids up to the International Space Station. I, we didn't get around to that part. Mm-hmm. Um, they were dopamine neurons uh, made into organoids, and we got them back after they've been in space for a month. Uh, we put them in a culture dish, and they grew axons like crazy. Yeah, as somebody who's actually also sent some <laughs> IPS-derived cardiomyocytes to the space station, I think that's the correct answer. So yeah, thank fantastic. You. Thank you. I thought you'd like it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Absolutely. How did you know? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I did my homework. Okay. Good to know. So what was your greatest science blunder then? Um, my science blunder, <laughs> yeah, it still it still stands out. It was an ultracentrifuge. It involved an ultracentrifuge. It was the middle of the night, and I was a graduate student. And you can imagine the horror um, one has when the ultracentrifuge doesn't work perfectly well and sounds like a freight train, and you're a graduate student. Oh, man. That was the worst thing I ever did. <laughs> uh, been there, done that, for sure. <laughs> How about your scientific heroes? Oh, yeah. I have a, a, my latest one is Tony Fauci. Um, I can't, he's, mm-hmm. he is, yep. he is so brave. He stands really close to politicians. <laughs> um, he, and, uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's not letting them keep him quiet. Hmm. And I think that's the bravest thing a scientist can do is just say, cut the bullshit. I'm going to tell you the truth. My other heroes are Richard Feynman. Um, and I liked him more. I guess for discovering why the um, the shuttle um, uh, disaster occurred by uh, finding out that the the rubber gasket uh, didn't hold up well in the cold, but everything else he did too, including learning how to pick locks. Uh, Mario Capecchi is a friend of mine, and I'm uh, he also won a Nobel Prize, but that's not why I like him a lot. I like him because he left Harvard. He went to Salt Lake City. He got his grants turned down, and then he won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And then Shinya Yamanaka, of course, because he's just a really fine person, and I think he, um, he is handling the fame um, as well as he can. Uh, he runs uh, marathons now. And that keeps him sane, but he's he is uh, he's a kind man and very smart, and I I greatly admire him. It's a phenomenal list, and I gotta <laughs> I gotta say that you know as a stem cell biologist, you know you are a scientific hero for a lot of us. So <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay, okay. I, I was thinking maybe I had to die before I get that. <laughs> <laughs> so wrapping things up, fill in the blanks. The big the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is blank. It's it's translation. It's using these cells for valuable things. And I don't just mean cell replacement therapy, but for making better drugs, for rescuing um, endangered species, for finding out um, how things happen in space. I mean, they're just amazingly useful. Absolutely. Next up, I would have never gotten to this point in my career without blank. 
Right. So I need to point out that I never had a mentor, and that's another story. Um, but I've had really good friends who are scientists, most of whom are scientists. And there is a very large group of people, maybe the size of a small town, who I will always call on, and they will always tell me the truth, and they will always help me. Um, and I'm um, I'm really stubborn. Um, I don't, I, if I see something in my way, I mean, it sounds trite, but if I see something in my way, I want to go over it, around it, or under it. Yep. Friendship definitely helps keeps us, you know, happy and sane, especially in times like these, right? So when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. <laughs> Sports. Sports. <laughs> All right. Fair and enough. I, ha I have an excuse. Um, I don't have binocular vision which means I don't have any depth perception, which means I get hit in the head a lot if I, something gets thrown at me. <laughs> well, you can't be good at everything, okay? Right. Finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on my way out, it is blank. Um, it would be my most, I actually know which scientist I would have to drag out, so that would be the first thing I would drag out. And then, of course, I'd come out with my computer. Wow. That's some info about you that I would not have guessed, Jean. But you know, I, I I'm not surprised to be surprised because you're you're an unconventional scientist and a fascinating individual. I got news for you, my dear. We've got to get you back to Africa. June 21st is the next solar eclipse. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know what? Maybe you can get me over there too. You said you've grown a little bit more wealthy as you've advanced in your career. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could get me on the team. I'm a, I could be a chaser. We'll go to Africa. Yeah. We'll have a grand time. What do you say, Gene? I think it's a very high priority. If my company is successful and I become a billionaire, I will certainly add that to my list. All right. Well, then I'm going to make a reservation. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Gene. This is a really fun talk and a fascinating individual. Uh, we wish you luck with your endeavors, and we'll see you out there under the ring of fire next time. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. for talking to us. You're welcome. It was delightful. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com. There you can get the show notes. You can get an episode summary, links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. That's at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Stay well out there, guys. We're going to be here for you. If you're quarantined, you can listen to all our archive shows. Be sure to check it out. Catch up. And we'll be here in a couple weeks, barring some catastrophe. <laughs>